The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All righty, welcome to the Disability Law Show. Once again, John Scholes here just hosting. All the heavy lifting is done by Martin Willems, Sam Firu Tamarkin, LLP, or stlawyers.ca. If you want to uh, to reach out, you can do it that way. Uh, phone number, anytime. Make that phone call. Do not be bashful. Reach out to Martin and his team. Always ready to have that conversation. That would be one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Again, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. I'll uh, throw that out uh, uh, sporadically throughout the show in case you missed it. That and help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address. The emails are piling up, pal. From last week, we're going to get into them very shortly. But we always kick it off with a uh, a week that was or two. What uh, what do you got cooking, Martin? What's happening? Yes, thanks, John. So mm-hmm. the first one that I'm going to discuss is. A situation where somebody engaged in the appeal process and we've discussed this many times on the show before and on our tv shows as to what the difference is between pursuing an appeal once an insurance company has denied your claim for long-term disability benefits versus possibly pursuing a legal claim now this person that i'm going to discuss this morning submitted a claim for long-term disability benefits because of a mental health illness which, again, makes up the biggest proportion of disability claims in this country. Um, She submitted the claim because her doctors supported that she was unable to work. She had anxiety and she had depression, both formally diagnosed, was seeing a family physician, and also had had started to see a psychiatrist. In conjunction with that, was doing counseling as well. So... Doing everything that is generally expected from somebody who has a mental health disorder. The insurance company denied the claim on the basis that we often hear that the evidence submitted is not sufficient. So what does that mean? Insurance companies often would say that because they would say, we understand that you may have anxiety or you may have depression, but we don't see the evidence to support that you cannot work. And that happens a lot. I've spoken about this before. When you submit a claim for disability benefits because of a mental health disorder and you have your doctor saying, my patient has depression or they have anxiety, therefore they cannot work, your claim is going to be denied. You have to focus on the functional impairment and explain why it is with that diagnosis, you are unable to perform the duties of your occupation. So she did that. She submitted the claim at the support of a doctor. The doctor completed what is referred to as the attending physician statement. And lo and behold, the claim was denied. She wasn't aware of her options um, because the insurance company, in the letter that they wrote to her, encouraged her to engage in the appeal process. So she did. And it took her a while because it's difficult to get in to see doctors everywhere in this country. Doctors are very busy. They're understaffed. There's a shortage. So it's also difficult for the doctors to then write further letters to support because they're seeing patients, paperwork is killing them, and it's not something they really want to do. They really want to treat their patients. But this doctor did, and the application or the appeal was submitted together with a letter from the family doctor who detailed, again, why she was disabled, detailed what was called her restrictions and limitations. She had difficulty to focus, to concentrate, to multitask, Um, had anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and couldn't 
manage deadlines, couldn't comprehend the information. So all the things that you want to see in an appeal letter was there. The appeal went in, and it took the insurance company a few months, believe it or not, to make a decision, and they rejected the claim. This time, the position was, we see that your doctor has provided this opinion. Um, you may have symptoms. We're not disputing that, but we don't see that this is a claim that should be paid because we don't find that you are actually disabled. It's not to the severity. They use language that's not even in the policy. It doesn't It's not significantly disabled or it's not as severe as we think it should be before you should be able to stop working. And also that they questioned whether her treatment was appropriate. She does another appeal. This time, the psychiatrist writes a letter because she wasn't able to get in to see the psychiatrist, which she did an initial appeal. The psychiatrist weighs in, looks at the denial letter, and also writes a letter saying that within the psychiatrist's opinion, she was appropriately treated. She had tried to increase the dosage of the antidepressant medication, which caused side effects, Therefore, the dosage was lowered. They had questioned this when they had denied the claim, saying, well, the fact that your, your medication dosage is lowered tells us that there is an improvement, which wasn't the case. It was simply that it was causing significant side effects. You know, sometimes these medications may make people suicidal, may um, have other issues, other side effects. Therefore, in conjunction with discussions with the treatment providers, being a psychiatrist, and this is specifically the area of expertise, decisions are made to lower dosages, or to try different medications. And at this point, she decided, luckily, because she then had heard uh, of our firm, to reach out. And we had a look at the denial. We had a discussion about what can be done, what the options are. And luckily, she was still within the timeline to pursue a legal claim. Because remember, when a claim is denied by an insurance company, what is called the limitation period, the timeline within which you can pursue a legal claim. It starts to run, regardless of whether you're pursuing an appeal. And we've discussed this before. People get confused with this. The insurance company writes you a letter. They speak to you about the appeal period, and then they speak about something called a limitation period. They may say, you've got this. You have to refer to the Insurance Act in your province to determine what the limitation period is. People don't know what that means. Yeah. So that's why you want to have a discussion with the lawyer who deals with this all the time so that you can understand at least what your options are. If you decide to pursue the appeal, which is not what we're advising, but if you do decide to do that, then at least you should know that if that appeal fails, you could still have the option to pursue a legal claim. But most importantly, that there's a timeline that runs. So in her case, luckily, she was still within that timeline, and we assisted by pursuing a legal claim and then focused on all the shortcomings of why the insurance company should have approved this claim when it was submitted at the very first instance. Why did they discount the doctor's opinions? Remember, in this case, there was no independent medical examination. Their doctors did not have an opportunity, and they didn't even seek an opportunity, to have a discussion with her doctors or to have her assessed by an independent medical examiner where that doctor, hopefully would have been a psychiatrist, would be in a position to comment on the treatment and the severity of the condition. They just simply ignored what her doctors were saying. And on top of that, they were saying, we've done an internal review. One of our doctors reviewed the medical information. 
And our doctor said, our health partner or whatever they want to call them, the doctors who work for the insurance company, decided that your condition is not that severe and the dosages of your medications indicate that you're not appropriately being treated if your condition is as severe as you say it is. Not bothering to reach out to a doctor to understand why the dosage was adjusted, not bothering to ask her why it was adjusted, ignoring the psychiatrist's letter, ignoring the family physician's letter, all trying to get this insurance company to approve the claim, which ultimately is what should have been done in the very first instance. So she had wasted eight months to engage in this process, didn't get any money, her condition is a mental health disorder, as I said. That was aggravated because the financial stress of not having money and trying to navigate the medical system on top of not being able to work just created so much stress and anxiety. I felt so bad for this lady, but I was also so happy to get involved and assist her in being the voice where she didn't have to deal with this nonsense anymore. And we managed to get her what she was entitled to. So... To anybody out there listening, again, I'm not saying do not do that ever, engage in the process that the insurance company is suggesting. What you should do, though, is have a discussion with us. I am always available, as as our team members are, to have discussions with people who have submitted claims, who have been denied, so that we can look at the denial letter. We can look at your circumstances, discuss your options with you so that you can understand what is available to you. Do you want to submit an appeal to the insurance company, the exact entity who denied your claim in the first place, and who might just go down that road again? Or do you want to pursue a legal claim where you have representation and all communications go through the lawyer? Um, Again, we're not mandating that people choose one or the other, but what, what we do do is offer an opportunity so that you can make an informed decision. Because knowledge is power. And just having that discussion, I know, often takes a load off of that stress because at least then you know what your options are and what you can do to pursue them. Amazing stuff, man. It's always good to uh, reach out to Martin, at least for clarity. If you're having those type of issues, we hate the appeal process. I mean, it's, you know, like you said, the off chance it may work once or twice, but it's, um, I, I think it's a really well designed, to be honest, it's a really well designed thing by the insurance companies, uh, Martin, because this is an official stand they have to take. This is something that's done in-house. You know, you hear appeal, it's, you know, everyone thinks it's going to the Supreme Court of Canada or the Provincial Court. No, no, no. It's an in-house thing. And it's, 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 it really has no teeth and it doesn't do you much good it's just you're, you're appealing to the same people who cut you off in the first place it's like you know your kid comes up and says martin can i have a piece of chocolate you say no it's almost dinner time well they come back at five minutes later and say can i have a piece of chocolate no i already told you it's dinner time it's the same thing it's not going to get you anywhere so just leapfrog that and um call martin do it that way you're much smarter uh, martin and if you insist on going down the appeal process at least get some advice on how to do it maybe some tips from martin and his crew to uh, put you down the right road. But we got lots more to chat about. We're just getting warmed up, right? You know what I mean? What do you think? Exactly. And uh, what what I was just going to add to that is exactly that is what we say. We do have that discussion so people can decide how how they want to proceed. That's key here. That's right. And the number, by the way, as we get into a short break and come back with lots more, you can write it down. Keep it one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred is the number. The email that will go to shortly is help at disabilityrights.ca. This is a disability law show. Short break. We're coming right back. Stay with us. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. 
The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And we're back. More of the Disability Law Show. Martin Willems will be your guy to reach out after the show any other time. He's got a great team working with him as well. one 855 821 That's the toll-free number anytime to use. And if you like the, uh, the email route, you can go that uh, that way as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Any other questions, you can also fill out a question you have to uh, ask. On your uh, tablet, cell phone, your desktop, whatever, go to mydisabilityquestions.com. That's yet another way to reach out and ask some questions. Okay. Normally, we get right into emails, but I know you're, uh, you're, you're heavy with the week that was, but you got something else to, um, something else to talk about, Martin, I think it's important to get to. What do, you got to what do you got going on now, pal? You know, every week or so, we do have a discussion about something called a pre-existing condition. And... I think I, I've slammed this drum so many times or banged this drum so many times. A pre-existing condition in the everyday sense tells you that it is something that you had before. But in disability contracts, it is something entirely different. There is a timeline that applies in most group policies as to whether to determine whether something is a pre-existing condition. So what I'm going to discuss with you now is something that I've seen. It's just an example to show that there is an argument to be made sometimes that a disability is not related to a pre-existing condition which may disqualify your claim. So the way that this works in general is as follows. You have a group policy. Most group policies have pre-existing condition exclusions. You have to look at what that definition is. But for the most part, if you have coverage on day one, and you go off work within the first year on because of a disability, then the insurance company can investigate whether your condition, your disability, is related to a pre-existing condition that directly or indirectly relates to your disability. That's generally how it works. Now, to be clear, you have to look at every policy to see what their specific definition for pre-existing conditions would be. So, if it says it's directly or indirectly related to a pre-existing condition for which you may have had medical care, usually there's also a time frame to establish whether it is a pre-existing condition. This is why I'm saying it is entirely different from your everyday understanding of what pre-existing is. If I use the phrase pre-existing condition, it simply is something that existed before. But in a disability policy, especially if there's a time frame, it is only a pre-existing condition if you had medical care for the condition during a specific period of time. I'll use an example in this case. The person did have coverage for less than one year. The policy provided that if you had medical care for a condition that directly or indirectly relates to that disability during the 90 days before you had coverage under the policy or in the 90 days following the policy, following the coverage under the policy, if there's any 90-day period in there, during which you did not receive medical care, then it is not a pre-existing condition. So it really is three months before and three months afterwards from the date that you had coverage. If there's any 90-day period in those six months during which you did not receive medical care for a condition that relates directly or indirectly to your disability, then it's not a pre-existing condition. So the insurance company in this instance looked at 
the person's medical records, determined that the person in the 90 days before they had coverage did see a doctor in relation to anxiety, which because this was a mental health condition. The disability was anxiety, so it was related to what they had been seen for during that period. But what the insurance company did not do, they did not investigate whether the person had any medical care in the 90 days following the date of coverage. And there was no treatment or medical care during that period of time, which meant that in the contractual sense, the insurance company misapplied and misinterpreted its own pre-existing exclusion language. Now, again, it's many people have difficulty understanding this because it says the person had clearly they had a pre-existing condition because they had cover they had treatment during that ninety days before the coverage. That's true, but the policy has specific language. And if the policy provides that if there's a 90-day period during which you did not have medical care, which in this case was correct, the person didn't have care, then it's not pre-existing. And insurance companies, when they want to rely on exclusionary language in their policies, then they have the duty to prove that, right? It's different from when you have to make a claim. You have to prove that you have a condition that is disabling. But right. when they want to rely on language in the policy that excludes your claim, they have the duty to prove it. And in this case, they misapplied, misinterpreted their own provision, their <laughs> own policy, yeah. which was infuriating. And when I said this to the client, because the client didn't understand this, the client didn't know this. They just came to us and said, well, we've heard you. We know you speak about pre-existing conditions. We're going to take a long shot because I know I have treatment for my anxiety. Maybe just have a look at it. And again, this is a message. If there is a denial, for whatever reason, but in this case, if it's pre-existing condition, we do want to have a look at the language of the policy. Because it may be that you have an argument to pursue. And in this case, the insurance company was wrong, 100% right. wrong. In other cases, it may be that there is an argument to be made that your condition now is You've got a generalized anxiety disorder where previously you were being treated for uh, major depression. Are they related? Possibly, but there definitely is an argument to be made that they're not. And the insurance companies, when they see these things, often deny cases on this basis. So you may just want to have a discussion with us. We'll review the claim with you and definitely the denial letter. And I'll tell you what I think. And so will our team members. Once there's a review done, and in this case, this person was very happy that they did have that done because, again, we took it on, pursued a legal claim, and got them what they deserved. Right. It's a, uh, it's, a, it's a good story, another reason why you should always reach out for sure. And here's that number as we get into our first email to call Martin and his team. It's one 821 5900 and that email address is help at disability rights. Okay, let's get into this. First email of the show says, Martin, my doctor said I have anxiety and depression. Uh, said I have anxiety and depression is recommending me to stay home and they have declined my request at my place of work. I've appealed it, but unsure of the outcome. What will be my options if my appeal, which it will be, is declined? What do you think? Well, <laughs> it's a very opportune email considering yeah. what we just discussed. Exactly. So, it's a mental health disorder, anxiety and depression. You've been recommended to stay home by your family doctor. You've now engaged in the appeal process and you're wanting to know what are your options if the claim is denied, if the appeal is dismissed, in other words. 
I suggest that you get in touch with our firm and have a free consultation with one of our lawyers to have a discussion with you, to review the denial letter, to review your circumstances. Hopefully, have a look at the policy if it's available. If not, we can still have that discussion and explain to you what your options are. In certain unionized cases, a legal claim is not an availability for you. It's not available to you. It's not possible for you. But for the vast majority of people, a legal claim is an option. So if your appeal is denied, that is an option. And the benefit of that is you have somebody fighting the fight on your behalf. You have a lawyer representing you. You don't need to deal with the insurance company anymore. You don't have to go through with their telephone functional interviews that they do. You don't have to jump through those hoops. You have a spokesperson and a representative and everything goes through the um, through the lawyer. Of course, it doesn't work for every single person. Sure. But the best thing to do is you want to know what your options are. As I said before, knowledge is power. And having that explained to you what the options are, you make the decision ultimately what outcome you want. But that would be my advice here. Get in touch with us once that um, decision is made, if it is denied, which we expect it to be. Yeah. And again, and again, that number, thank you so much for the email, by the way, one 821 5900 Let's flip through the emails. Uh, this one's a beauty. Okay. Uh, Martin, does a medical diagnosis of anxiety and depression requiring both medication and medical leave from work constitute a short-term disability? I've been on leave from work since the 17th of January, but my employer's insurance policy only talks about long-term disability and nothing regarding mental illness. What are your thoughts? Okay, so this is a good question. And as you can see, mental health every single time because there are so many mental health disability claims that are filed and are presumably denied as well so in this case the first thing that this person wants to know is does a medical diagnosis of anxiety and depression constitute a short-term disability it's an interesting question but i'm going to rephrase it the first thing you want to know because you you've been off work since january 17 so it's not coming up to a month most insurance policies or most group policies will have a long-term disability right not all of them have short-term it depends on what your employer has available to you what is your benefit package not everybody has short-term disability coverage and if you don't then you likely will want to apply to medical ei because it will cover you for a period of time With long-term disability, and if you do have short-term disability coverage, by all means, yes. It doesn't matter what the condition is. It matters what the functional impairment is, as I've said before. Mental health in this country, and I think all over the world, is the major force behind disability claims. So these are not generally excluded. When you're saying you're looking at the LTD policy, but it doesn't say anything regarding mental illness, The policies generally will provide that if you have an illness or a condition or an injury that prevents you from performing the essential duties of your occupation, then you should be paid benefits. It's not going to say, and again, nothing's either black or white. There's always a bit of gray. They're not going to say in these policies, group policies specifically, that we are excluding these conditions. I have on occasion seen very rarely that there are policies that may exclude things like mental health disorders, um, Epstein-Barr virus, chronic fatigue, neurological disorders, 
um, things like that. But they are very, very rare. The vast majority of group policies don't exclude conditions. It simply is, do you have an illness? Yes. And is that illness disabling? In other words, is it functionally impairing you from performing your duties? So have a discussion with your doctor to prepare, if it is that you continue to be disabled, to prepare the documents. The doctor will have to file or support at least your claim by submitting an attending physician statement where the doctor will be expected to complete and indicate what the conditions or condition conditions is or are and what the disabling features may be. So inability to focus, concentrate, etc. what medications you take, what counseling it is that you're doing. And in this case, it seems that the person is taking a medication. If you're not improving, have the doctor refer you to a psychiatrist as well. Consider doing counseling because they, these are all the features that the insurance company will be looking at when you do submit that claim. And again, if the claim is denied, then you get in touch with us. But I do want to make this clear because I get lots of questions from people and saying, is this condition considered to be a disability? We've had this before. Is a headache disorder a disability? Is schizophrenia a disability? It doesn't matter what it is. The diagnosis, yes, it is important. But the most important thing is functional impairment. So what are the restrictions and limitations? And that's the discussion that you have with your treatment team, with your doctors, and see if they support that you cannot work. If so, then explain why that is. Thank you so much for that email and an uh, amazing answer, Martin. Once again, appreciate it. Uh, we're going to take a short break again, back into more of the emails. You want to leapfrog that and go for a phone call anytime. It's, it'll cost you nothing just to have a conversation with Martin about things we discuss on the show or your own matter. one 855 821 is how you go about doing that. And the email address, again, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll return with more of the Disability Law Show momentarily. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Disability Law Show continues. Martin Willems, the guy you want to reach out to, has got a great team working with him. He'll put you in touch with himself or one of them, and he will uh, he'll help indeed. At least have a chat. Won't cost you a penny. Just pick up a phone, one 821 5900 to make that phone call. You have the option of emailing help at disabilityrights.ca. And for quick, easy-to-digest, concise notations and knowledge about LTD, numerous topics, you can go to ltdfaq.ca. It's exactly what's written as ltdfaq.ca, and it will answer a lot of those questions. It's a, it's, it's baked into the title of the actual webpage, right? Uh, emails is where we're going, short but sweet. Uh, Martin, can I collect LTD and CPP disability at the same time, and is there a benefit to doing this? We get this question quite a bit. But uh, go ahead, pal. We do get this question quite a bit. So some people resist applying for CPP disability. Others are keen to do so. So can you collect CPP and CPP? Well, can you get LTD and CPP disability at the same time? Often insurance companies expect you to apply for CPP disability because it is in their financial interest as well. So can you do it? Yes, you can. But there's a consequence. For the most part, again, Almost all LTD group policies provide that. If you do apply for CPP disability benefits and it's approved, that payment is deducted from your LTD benefit. These things are called offsets. And the policy may provide that there are other offsets as well. For example, work 
WorkSafe money that you may receive as a result of the same disability. These are called offsets and they are deducted dollar for dollar from your LTD benefit amount. Is there a benefit to doing so? So some people get upset about this and I understand why, because the LTD benefit may be non-taxable, but CPP disability is taxable. In those instances, we recommend that the person applies for the disability tax credit as well. Is there a benefit to getting your CPP disability and the LTD at the same time? We often say that if you do apply for L for CPP disability and it's approved, it is further evidence to support that you are disabled because even the federal government through Service Canada accepts that you cannot work in any gainful occupation and that your condition is severe and prolonged. That is the exact definition for CPP disability. So yes, it supports and underscores the fact that we would say that you're disabled within the meaning of the policy. And the other issue that I would say is CPP disability, there is a cost of living allowance. There's an annual increase. It's indexed, in other words. So if you get $900 now, next year you may get 925 or 900 whatever it may be. It increases every year where LTD doesn't necessarily increase if you don't have what is called a cost of living allowance in your policy. And again, most policies, and this is also important to understand, most policies only provide that the base amount for CPP disability is deducted from the LTD. So that annual increase that you have every year is not deducted, depending on the language of the policy, but the vast majority of them provide that the increases are not offset from what you from your LTD benefit amount. So that's another benefit. The last one that I will mention is, unlike LTD, where you're dealing with an insurance company who is motivated to get you back to work and will continuously adjudicate the claim to see whether there's evidence of improvement to potentially deny your claim. CPP doesn't necessarily work that way. Once your claim for CPP disability is approved, you're not going to have this monthly or three monthly or six monthly assessments of whether you continue to be disabled under the terms of that the CPP plan. So if you're approved, you could probably expect that you will continue to receive benefits to the age of 65, unless it is that you do improve and that you return to work but then, of course, you are expected to tell um, Service Canada, the CPP disability adjudicators, that that has been done. And they will tell you then how that works. Because they do sometimes allow people to see whether they can go back to work. And if their condition worsens, they simply tell them and their, their benefits still continue without having to go through the whole process. So, yes, there are some benefits to applying for CPP disability as well. Again, any other questions? Uh, well answered. But if you have any more questions about that, thank you for the email. By the way, it's one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Next one, uh, guys. If I had symptoms of depression and was treated for depression, but was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder, is it correct for the insurer to say that my depression is a here it comes pre-existing condition, and my disability claim for bipolar disorder is therefore excluded as a pre-existing condition? Big theme today. It is a big theme today, and you know, wow. remarkably, I have actually represented somebody with this exact scenario. And it's complicated, right? This is not an easy thing to navigate, because these are two mental health disorders. Bipolar disorder, where people have manic highs and very low lows, and sometimes it starts off with a diagnosis of depression, 
and then later on a new psychiatrist sees the person and then diagnoses them with bipolar disorder. I've seen many cases where psychiatrists, experts in the field, argue with each other or dis disagree at least whether the diagnosis indeed is bipolar disorder or is it something else. And then somebody else may step in and say, no, this is a panic disorder. People do get diagnosed with different conditions. I always have a look at what does the policy say. It is key to look at the pre-existing condition exclusion because contracts are open to interpretation, right? So if I look at the wording, I'm going to see, is there a way that I can try and fit these specific facts within this specific contractual exclusion? And often, not always, but often there is a way to do so. In a situation like this, when we have a diagnosis of depression, which later on is in bipolar disorder, is it indeed a new diagnosis, or is it simply that the symptoms were there, but it wasn't properly diagnosed later on? It really depends on the facts. But in these cases, I often get on the phone with the treating psychiatrist and have a discussion with them and explain to them, this is the situation, this is the way that this policy reads, is this condition actually related to this disabling condition for which the person had been treated on or earlier on? So in this case, you may have an argument to pursue, but we would want to have a look at the exact wording of that pre-existing clause. Please don't be discouraged by the fact that the insurance company denied this claim as a pre-existing condition. I can see that they would jump on that. But is it indeed? And if you have a discussion with that, I can go through it, or so one of our team members can go through it with you to see what the right question is to ask the treating psychiatrist to at least guide you through that process, because it's quite possible that you're in a position where you can pursue a legal claim. We got a few minutes to go. We have more emails to go as well, so we'll get to those uh, in and out of that uh, that break rather quickly. And in the meantime, I'm going to give you a, uh, a chance to write down this information. This is to reach out after the show to Martin and his team. It's always good to have this on your phone. The uh, phone number is one eight five five eight two one. 5900 and the email address we use every week is help at disabilityrights.ca you can also ask your questions anonymously through my disabilityquestions.com that's a good one because the database is searchable right which is nice because maybe your question as one very similar same structure has been uh previously asked and answered and you can save some time just look at the answer maybe it'll uh, answer everything for you if not type in your own question leave it it will get taken care of at my disabilityquestions.com few minutes to go more emails we'll get in as many as we can in the remaining part of the show as we continue this the disability law show hang in there you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back. Disability Law Show. Martin Willems, reach out to Martin at the firm anytime when we're not doing this hour of radio. Got a great team on the phones as well. one 855 821 5900 it can be uh, rough waters navigating things with the uh, disability insurer whether you're dealing with an adjuster or otherwise been asked to appeal been told you're going to get cut off or have been cut off incredibly stressful but there is help there and it starts with a phone call that'll cost you nothing just to just to throw your case out there and ask if, if there's something they can do one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca which is where we're going again martin next email 
Guys, love the show. Long-time listener, first-time email. Uh, I'm on disability and I'm considering a return to work. While I was off on LTD, my employer changed group insurers. Should I return to work and fail, which insurer will be responsible for paying me LTD benefits once again? Well, this is an interesting one and it has potential traps. Okay. Oh, wow. So, you're off work, considering a return to work. While away, the employer now has a different insurance company insuring LTD benefits. So what this tells me is that the previous one is paying your LTD benefits now. If you were to return to work, the big question will be, how long, if you do go off again, how long did you work for and what is it that you were doing? Most group policies have something called a recurrence provision. So if you do go back to work, let's say you work full-time hours, and your condition worsens and you go off work again within a month or two due to the same condition. That, depending on the language of the pre-existing condition, also not the pre-existing, the recurrence provision in your policy, the previous policy, will determine whether that insurance company has to start paying you again. They're not going to like that, to be clear here. They're not going to want to do that. So I can already see problems arising from this. But... In theory, if that is the case, let's say they have a six-month recurrence provision because that's what most policies have. If you go off work and then you return to work, working your full-time hours, your full-time duties, and you go off work within the first six months due to the same disability, because of that recurrence provision, it is deemed to be a recurrence of the previous claim, which means that you don't have to submit a new claim and there's no waiting period that you have to satisfy. But if you work for longer than six months, if it is a six-month um, uh, uh, recurrence provision, if you work for more than those six months, then it really depends on what the language of the new policy says. It likely will be that it will be a new claim because the disability will be then be deemed to have arisen after the six months, which is when the claim arises, so you will be covered under the new policy. As with everything, it depends on the language of the policies. And I've seen cases like this where the insurance companies fight each other because neither wants to, neither one of them wants to take responsibility for the payment of that claim. Right. And they're interesting cases, but they can become tricky. And again, it sounds like a refrain now, but you have to be in touch with a disability lawyer if that does happen so that we can review what is the wording in each of these policies and how much time has gone by since you've done the return to work. And if it is a graduated return to work, so you carry on, work three hours a day, increase it maybe to four hours, that's your maximum, and then you find that you work like that for a period of time and go off again, that in my mind would just be something that should have been covered under the rehab provisions, which also points back to the fact that it should be covered by the initial insurance company and the, not the new one. But it's a difficult uh, situation to manage and navigate, and there are potential pitfalls and landmines. So you want to make sure what it is that you are doing when you're doing it, that you know what the provisions of these policies are, so that if something does go wrong, if you don't go off work again, that you know where to turn. In other words, to which insurance company. And, of course, um, to our firm if you struggle with this. 
And again, thank you so much for reaching out. If you need to make that phone call, you're uh, invited to do so. one 821 5900 See if we get uh, one or two more of these in before the end of the show, Martin. Um, I'm at the change of disability definition, and I lost my doctor this past December. I don't currently have a doctor. What does that mean for me now? Uh, I'm in a very vulnerable state. Please help me out, Martin. Thank you so much. Okay, what does that okay mean? so th- this is a difficult situation to manage, right? Remember, when we speak about disability policies and disability claims, that policy is a contract that has rights and obligations and provisions. Your obligation under the contract is to be under the regular care of a physician and to follow through with appropriate treatment advice. It's not within your control that you've lost your doctor. And I, you know, how often I speak to people when they say to me, my doctor has moved away, my doctor is retiring, um, there, there are no doctors in my town or in the little t- city that I live in or little town that I live in. It's a very difficult thing to manage. These policies don't re- generally recognize that because they're, they're just there, written with their obligations. And in your situation, even though that's not within your control, you should do your utmost best to find a new doctor. And if you cannot find a new doctor, make sure that you continue to see doctors at a walk-in clinic at least, or try and find some doctor online, because I know that there are some doctors who offer services online, like um, through telehealth, I think is what it may be called, um, so that you can still show that even though you don't have a doctor anymore, that you are taking positive steps to get the treatment that you need, and to see a doctor on a regular basis, even if it isn't the same one. Yes, it is not ideal, but it is crucial that you do whatever you can to find a new doctor and that you see a doctor. Because insurance companies, especially because you're at the change of definition, is going to be difficult because what do you do if the insurance company denies that claim? Who are you going to turn to as a doctor to complete a a letter for you to support why it is? that you remain disabled in the any occupation phase. And the last thing that I will say on this point is, other than be do your best to see a doctor as uh, regularly as you can, if the insurance company denies you based on this, that you're not seeing a doctor regularly, or that they don't find you are still disabled in the any occupation phase, please reach out to us so that we can help you navigate this. Because you should not be in a position where you're stressing that you don't have a doctor, and that the insurance company isn't paying you benefits. That's why we're here. We'll offer you that free consultation and discuss with you what your options are. And with that, we are up against the clock and out of time. Thank you so much for reaching out. If you by email, you can always continue that conversation. They will get read. Keep sending them, help at disabilityrights.ca. And uh, another way you can ask your questions is mydisabilityquestions.com. That's free. That's anonymous, of course. And then finally, the phone number, if you want to go right for the right for the phone call, that would be one 855 And we'll catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.